This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today's show may contain references to erotic and sexual subjects, so make your decision about where and how to listen appropriately. Today's guest is Callie Williams. Callie is an entertaining, informative powerhouse speaker who instigates unexpected aha moments for her audiences. She uses storytelling and her unconventional background to keep listeners engaged while giving them concrete and actionable advice. Callie is a provocative, revelatory, knowledgeable leader with a twist. After bringing innovation to sex education, Callie is working to give a kick to women's empowerment and diversity, especially in the tech and startup communities. Welcome, Callie. Thank you so much, Leela. I'm really excited to be here to talk with you. I am so excited to have you. So you have a kind of an unusual background. You allude to it in your bio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do now and how you arrived there? Sure. So I've definitely had a rather unconventional journey to get to where I am today. For many years, um, around 12 years, I was a professional dominatrix. And for a lot of people who don't necessarily understand what that is, it's it's in the vein of Fifty Shades, but with actual consent and experience. <laughs> and uh, domination, and particularly professional domination, is all about creating an environment for people to explore power, that a lot of times when someone comes in as a submissive, they're interested in conscientiously giving up power to someone that they trust within a boundary period of time, usually. And for the women who are attracted to the professional domination field, there's often a desire to turn power dynamics on their head. And so it's really all about exploring what power means, what it means to take power, what it means to give up power. And and then it's wrapped in this incredibly theatrical, there's a lot of props involved, different costumes, you know, people very much associate the leather cat suit with the dominatrix. But I used to wear sundresses and as well as fetish gear as, you know, itself. And so it's, there's this very core explanation of power and identity and consent and psychological drama that then gets wrapped in these kind of theatrical framework. And then you add props and it provides an environment for folks to really explore the taboos that we're often told are not for us. I am a cisgendered woman identified dominatrix or I was a dominatrix. Now I'm retired. And so when I say that we're able to explore taboo, what I mean is that as a woman, I have been told for most of my life that basically that I'm not powerful, that, that, you know, I, I believe that women are often taught that our only power lies in our sexual worthiness. And while that can play a component in the BDSM world. One of the things that I love about BDSM is that it goes far beyond the the sort of traditional narrow scope of what is considered desirable. And so from the woman's perspective, 
we're exploring that taboo of claiming our sexuality, of embracing a more powerful, expressive version of ourselves that expresses our desires and set boundaries and the ways that we're not usually allowed to do those things in greater society. And my most common client were cisgendered men, although that's certainly not the only dynamic that's available in kink play. And so for cisgendered men, their exploration of giving up the power that they're constantly told that they have and are responsible for and the taboo of not actually trying to be the most alpha individual in the room. And so for me, at least kink is, and and my exploration of kink is deeply rooted in these ideas of who has power, who's allowed to have power and what power looks like for different people. Yeah, the gender piece is so interesting because we have this incredibly deeply rooted set of ideas. I was speaking with uh, Kate Sloan a few interviews ago, and she was talking about the ways in which she still experiences that very gendered, like men are supposed to be dominant, women are supposed to be submissive element, kind of everywhere that she goes in the kink spaces and um, and how challenging that is for someone who wants to explore in alignment with that. So she was talking about being a submissive woman and wanting to explore that and deepen that at the same time, not wanting to reinforce these kind of cultural stereotypes that are, that are so prevalent. Absolutely. And I think in some ways that can be, it can feel like a very contradictory desire. I, I teach a class called DS's Feminist Expression. And the idea is that the class came from the many, many, many conversations that I had with women who identified as submissive, who felt a lot of guilt, that felt like they were essentially betraying their own politics and their own philosophy because they wanted to be on the submissive side of things. And the number of women that I've spoken to who identify as dominant, who've been told that their desires are actually inherently supportive of the patriarchy. And there's this real like, damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of approach. Whereas for me and the philosophy that I teach in DS's feminist expression, as well as all of the work that I do, is that choice is what inherently makes something feminist, whether it's for men and women, for non-gender conforming individuals, what makes these things that we do in the kink world powerful is the choice to do them. And so this idea that even in a community of, you know, a subculture where we're like rebels and, oh my God, we're confronting so many taboos, there still is a level of expectation of conforming that folks are going to be battling up against. And so it's just not clear cut whether you're in the broader world or whether you're in a, a niche world like the kink, kink community. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely my experience. I'm always intrigued by this out idea that, you know, power is, I had one guest define power as the ability to do something, but I really like where you're going with choice because I think choice is, is, Choice is where it all comes down. 
Exactly. For me, for me, feminism is about choice for everyone. If you want to be a stay at home mom, then that's just as much your right as if you want to go out and take the corporate world by storm. And those are just off the top of my head examples. But when you look at the difference between engaging in a behavior because it's expected of society that you behave in that way or engaging in a behavior because you deeply desire that behavior, you know, what makes the world have any right to tell me which which choices I'm making, including the ones that... This whole idea that feminism was supposed to release women from the shackles of staying at home, and then therefore staying at home as a stay-at-home mom becomes something negative to avoid, to me, just contradicts the entire idea of, of feminist choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when anything is considered shackles, we have to put our antennae up. Right. Because somebody outside that situation is deciding that it's shackles and deciding that that's a bad thing. And that, right, exactly. Well, and that's, I mean, one of the, I think, most common misconceptions about kink is that one person or the other has all the power, when in fact, there is a power of choice, no matter which side of the DS exploration you might be interested in. And that when it comes to women feeling guilty because they want to experience erotic submission or they want their partner to spank them, I personally believe that it is an utterly reasonable choice in your life to pick and choose when you're going to claim your power in an active way and when you're going to claim your power by choosing to give it up to someone else. That is still a claim on Mm -hmm. power. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of folks skip over is that by choosing submission or dominance or or any any other, um, I mean, I'm using it in those terms because that's the the waters that, that I swim in most frequently. But but anytime someone makes a choice based on their own desires, that is inherently powerful, regardless of what their desires are. That right there, that that sentence right there. There is so much in that sentence. <laughs> So you've worked with a lot of people who have chosen to relinquish their power in a given context for a given time. What transformations do you observe in people when they make that choice? Freedom is the first thing that flashes in my mind is freedom, is that being an adult is very complicated. (laughs) There are so many responsibilities, decisions, um, obligations, desires, and family dynamics, relationship dynamics, work dynamics. And that as an adult, we have to manage all of these things and juggle all of these things. And so the beauty of choosing to give up those responsibilities. Now, again, usually it's for a portion of time. Sometimes it's for an hour or a weekend, or some people do structure their relationship based on this philosophy. But that when you, when they choose to give up those responsibilities, I immediately see a lightness 
about the people that I work with. And quite frankly, that's true on both sides when it comes to doing the thing that they've been told they're not supposed to. And so with the men that I've worked with who are who are submissive, when they choose to give up this expectation of knowing everything all the time, I see the freedom in that. And the women that I coach to embrace their power and in fact to walk firmly down the path of uh, demanding that their needs get met. That is a different kind of freedom. Uh, But again, choice and freedom are the two things that are the driving factors for these kinds of interactions. So let's shift it just a, a quarter turn to the right. I have in a couple of previous interviews posited that being employed is also a power exchange and choosing to be employed or choosing to employ someone. And so how do these same ideas apply outside of relationship context, How do, or outside of romantic relationship or sexual relationship or kink relationship context? How do they apply in, for example, a business relationship? Yeah, that's a great question and is a big part of now where my work is expanding. That For the last 20 years, I've been very deeply entrenched in the kink world and in um, helping folks reclaim their power in the bedroom, whatever that looks like. And over the course of the last two decades of working with so many people and seeing that the techniques that I was teaching them about how to have difficult conversations about their sexuality, that those same techniques are actually totally applicable to every other aspect of your life. Difficult conversations are difficult conversations. And so I found that the clients that I was working with, particularly the women that I was coaching to embrace their um, dominant side in the bedroom, were then finding that same power overflowing into other aspects of their life, where then they would ask for a raise and um, feel more confident in explaining and expecting their value to be treated accordingly. Accordingly, These same women were then going to have conversations with their families in their relationships and saying, you know, hey, I don't appreciate the way that you talk to me. I've definitely worked with some women who had to sit down and with their moms and say, you know, hey, the fat shaming or the shaming about my life choices or whatever has to stop. And so I have seen over and over and over and over again that when you are able to claim power in in a difficult arena in life, that power then 100% translates to the way that you carry yourself in other aspects of your life. And what do you think the impact of this same kind of thing, but from the other side, what do you think the impact is for men specifically, or people socialized as men who spend time with you practicing relinquishing their power, practicing stepping back? Well, I've always kind of joked, but it's I've realized it's actually a pretty significant part of my philosophy that part of my quote unquote kink play is forced feminism. And so the men that I've worked with, I've had so many notes and so much feedback over the years at the level of empathy that they gain and um, most particularly the ability to listen is one of the biggest and most dramatic impacts I've seen for particularly cisgendered men or folks, like you mentioned, who are socialized as men that that are just not necessarily taught that listening is important. 
And that in this new environment where they're not the driving force and they actually have to step back and respect what someone else is saying has been a way for them to really see how power plays out because we we are often not aware of our own power privilege. And that's particularly true for a lot of uh, men who just don't really have to dig all that deep into their privilege. And so by coming into this alternate reality, they get to experience what it's like to be on the other side of a powerful person and how that both feels and how you need to adjust your listening skills and communication skills accordingly. Mm -hmm. So I have another quarter turn for us. I'm thinking about my own journey with power, which has been fascinating and complex and is inflected by the stack of marginalized identities that I carry with me. And that has included coming to understand that I'm not a woman, that I'm genderqueer. And what is that how does that affect my presentation? How does that affect my presence in the world? How does that affect how I carry myself? One of the things that I have noticed in conversation with other folks in the trans and, and gender nonconforming gender queer spaces, I've noticed that there are a lot of us who, as we come into a more resonant, more consonant gender expression, we pick up a pile of confidence. And as we pick up that confidence, we then start to take up more space. And as we take up more space, we then start to carry more power. And as we carry more power and more confidence, then at least for me, there I've had this moment of like, how much taking up space is too much taking up space. Like I've never taken up space before. I don't know what I'm allowed to do and when it becomes obnoxious. I have no gauge for that because I have no practice and I'm in my 40s. Yeah, like the femdom world that I come from in terms of the kink aspect of things is very binary. It's very like men's power looks like this, women's power looks like that. And those who don't fit into that sort of binary, those binary boxes then don't really have much of a role model or a framework in terms of figuring out those questions is that how much is too much space? I, I mean, this is, a, I'm white, I'm a white woman. And this is something I see fellow white women do all the time is that because of the marginalized identity of being a woman, which, which is still a marginalized, um, you know, identity in current society, but th- they take that to mean then that they're allowed to take up all of the space because of that singular... Right marginalized identity. And that when you start getting to intersectional issues, whether that's gender nonconforming, whether or not that's disability or uh, race impacting your behavior and other people's perception of your behavior, it can be a, a labyrinth to feel like you can find your way towards what power looks like for you. Mm-hmm. And not just what it looks like and what feels pleasant for me, but also how I want to carry myself in the world. What's what's in consonance with my values? What's an ethical way to carry power in the world, given what I know about what it's like to be on the less powerful side of any interaction and how I don't want to recreate that experience for people in a way that's negative, but how sometimes, and I know that you know this, sometimes 
sometimes what people want is somebody to hold the container. Sometimes what people want is somebody else to be in charge. Sometimes people are exhausted. Sometimes people just don't, they don't feel like they have the expertise to be in charge. And so watching that dynamic, I was at a, a local nonprofit board meeting recently and the co-chairs are a white gay man and a woman of color who's queer identified in some way. I don't know exactly what her identity is. And watching the power interplay between the two of them when he's clearly accustomed to taking up more space and clearly not accustomed to stepping back, even as he's verbally acknowledging that he might not have the skill for this moment in the meeting. It's really fascinating. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, the majority of that sort of thing comes from socialization in my experience. It's not that cis men are actually inherently bad at at sharing power or whatever it's just that they that that the messaging that men have received over and over and over and over again is that you have to be the expert you have to be the highest authority in the room um there tends to be a very hierarchical thinking in that type of socialization and um the thought of being knocked down from a um, perceived higher position is enough to make folks, and men are certainly not the only ones that do it, but again, there's a socialization that says, oh, I just trust that you will either know what you're talking about or will say it with such authority that everyone will listen to you. And it's a, it's it's tough to fight that level of socialization. Mm-hmm. Not impossible. So what could- So what kinds of tools do you offer people to fight that socialization on both sides? But let's start with people relinquishing power who are accustomed to having power. Yeah, I think that one thing that's really important is that folks with privilege, whether that's male privilege or white privilege or cis privilege, like many of us have some aspect of privilege somewhere when we stop looking at the idea of privilege as inherently insulting, I think that's going to be a really big step for folks to then take a look at how they can adapt their behavior is that, is that rather than saying, Oh, you have, you know, I have privilege. So therefore I must be a bad person. And so if I just don't acknowledge my bad, my privilege, then that doesn't really apply to me. I think that when folks who are in power, can start to take a look at how they are reframing their power by either standing, stepping back and allowing other voices to contribute. That again, there is a power in that. And so rather than looking at, oh, there is a singular power and that is the power of being able to talk or the power of being able to make the decision and instead reframing it as, there is a power in listening to people not like that are unlike me. There is a power in platforming other voices and that it's, it's a different kind of power, but that if you just need to feel powerful, then by shifting your idea of what can make you powerful, it's going to then contribute to you feeling that stepping back or 
relinquishing some of that traditional sense of power is not going to diminish you in any way. In fact, in a lot of ways, it'll strengthen your position when you do speak up, it'll strengthen your network, and it'll more than likely strengthen your success because we truly are stronger together, but that's only when everyone is able to contribute what they bring to the table. Okay, I just had the most interesting, interesting, made the most interesting connection. Let's hear it. So a friend of mine, somebody, who was I talking to? Oh, one of my partners recently sent me a link. We were having a conversation because I had called myself, I had said, it's just so easy for me to look frumpy. And my partner was like, excuse me, don't call yourself that. And so we got into this conversation about what it means and if it's sexist or or what, like what, and why that word felt like a good description of what I was experiencing. And, you know, and and in the midst of that conversation, they sent me a link to a thing about the history of fashion that talked about the connection between anti-immigrant sentiment and the movement toward classy being this very elegant simplicity. Oh, I just saw, I just read that myself as well, that which was, okay. I mean, and that's exactly it is we, these things are so baked into our society. Right. The fact that it requires this in-depth history understanding to recognize why certain clothing options or presentations, why I think in the same article or something related, I read that where it was the simplicity of neutral tones was specifically to counteract the supposed garishness of the bright colors that non-white communities wore. And so that even though it was like, oh, this is about this one thing, it really was actually about a completely other thing. And that we so often just don't recognize or understand where those terms or expectations or societal boxes (laughs) that we're supposed to fit in come from. Right. So I'm listening to you talk about the ways in which people with power can recognize stepping back as a way of claiming power. And I'm seeing this, this parallel in my head between, on the one hand, this ideal of elegant simplicity as the ultimate in expression of richness, right? Expression of wealth, expression of power, in that realm. And then in this other side, I'm seeing that you're suggesting that in fact, people could sort of port that over. (laughs) Yes. Well, port that over, but, but, but let me hear a little bit more what you mean by that. Well, that, that in the same way that being in the same way that this concept of elegant, it's, it's a little tricky, right? Because this, there's the racism piece that you just mentioned. And so we have to account for that in the porting over. But this idea that the more powerful position or that a powerful position can be less flamboyantly powerful, less visibly powerful, that you can, that there is power in stepping back. And then the question is, okay, so if there's power in stepping back, are you actually relinquishing power? Well, yes, because again, I come back to the this idea that, I mean, I find language to just be so lacking when we talk about these things, right? Because we're using the word power, but we're using it in different ways. Is that what I'm saying is that by relinquishing a visible power, 
what you are then claiming is a more perhaps internal power or a more socially driven power. And so it's not that, so it's like, oh, you give up power and yet you retain power, but which I would, I believe is true, but that's because I'm talking about two different types of power. We just don't have enough language to describe that nuance. And so we just, we say a single word and we hope that the other person that we're talking to understands that word to mean the same thing that we believe it to mean. Well, and that's the story of bad communication all up and down the scale, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you how many people I've walked through some kind of negotiation conversation, whether it's professional or relational. And, and they're like, well, I'm just going to say this. And I'm like, okay, so so I, I can hear that you think that that will be taken this way. Have you considered that it also might be heard that way? Oh, no, I hadn't thought about that. Right. So when somebody claims that internal power and relinquishes the external power, can you talk a little bit? I mean, this also ties in with the controversy around that new, is it a TV show? Camp- the ballroom competition. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, it's with. an HBO show. I've, I've been seeing some of the discourse around that. Right. And so the question is, is there really power in giving up your, is it okay to say that you're wanting to use your platform if in fact you're the one holding the platform, then you're not actually giving up power. But what I'm interested in asking first is, is this question of internal power. Can you talk a little bit about what you perceive that internal power to be or how you perceive it manifesting? Yeah. I think that internal power is more about how you feel about your choices rather than how other people are going to receive your power in the sense that it is a balance that, and this is where I see a lot of privileged folks who say, you know, well, I have bills to pay. Why should I give up opportunities that I was chosen for so that somebody who's otherwise been marginalized come up, right? And and that, I mean, and there is, there's obviously some reasonable philosophy there in that, you know, we all have a right to care for ourselves and to seek out our dreams and those kinds of things. But for me, I have experienced the power of allyship that is not about visible. It's not about basically getting a gold star, right? Is that, and and so I'm trying to, I'm trying to find my way here towards the language that's new and nuanced enough to get what I'm trying to say across in that the internal power that I feel for knowing that I'm doing, I'm living by my values, that I am doing what I can. I am certainly in no way per- perfect. Allyship is a is a practice, not an identity. That I'm making choices that I believe are both to my benefit and the benefit of either subcultures I care about or society at large. That feels powerful to me inside without anyone ever seeing that process is that I feel powerful knowing that I am living by my values and that my values are to speak up when it's appropriate and to step back when there's someone who is better equipped to address something that I am. 
And so I, so when I say internal power, it means more that it is my experience of power rather than an expression of power. Does that, does that make sense? It does. It does. I mean, I think you're, what I'm hearing you say is that there's an incredible internal power in knowing that you're living in integrity. Yes. Right. Exactly. And that that doesn't have to do with anybody else. It sounds sort of like that closing scene in The Crucible. Which I I was in in high school and I can't remember exactly what scene you're referencing. I'm, I'm, what I'm what I'm referring to is the scene where the man is being pressed to death. He's got, you know, stones sitting on his chest and he's being, he's being executed that way. And they keep asking him to recant. And he, and he basically says, Nope, I can't. I can't, I I can't compromise myself. Exactly. The power to stay true to yourself even when external forces, in his case, very literal external forces, are squeezing you to contort yourself to other people's um, expectations of you. Mm-hmm. And so again, that's where I think the where it flips the idea on its head is that when people think, oh, power has to be very visible, power has to be about showing the world. That, that you that you're doing a thing or that you can be stronger than them or whatever that is more about proving to other people that you are powerful and instead of recognizing your power whether or not other people see it or approve of it or not right and so that talks a little bit about a, a locus of authority which I was just teaching, I'm in the process of facilitating a a course for a Unitarian Universalist Church in Oregon, because technology, I can do that from here in California. And, And we were talking about right relationship and locus of authority, and how do you speak up when you speak up, especially against some kind of injustice, how do you locate your authority when you do that? And how does the location of your authority change your willingness or unwillingness to do it? where you might not be willing to say that's wrong because I said so, you might be willing to say that's wrong because you're out of covenant. You know, we have a covenant in this congregation and you're you're not in alignment with that covenant. And so this question of locus of authority is actually really interesting because how do you, how do you know? And when you when you locate when you're willing to both locate your authority internally and then call on that authority and claim it in um in public spaces there's tremendous power in that. Absolutely. And and most especially for people who are constantly told that they are powerless, whether that's women, whether that's immigrants or the LGBTQ community, is that when you claim your own authority and you declare yourself an authority without waiting for other people to approve of that authority, because again, in the society as it is currently running, that authority is not going to be given to anyone but a fairly narrow description of individual. And so there is there is absolutely tremendous power in claiming your power, claiming your authority, and staying true to the integrity of your own values, whether or not there's space for that in others or not. 
So let's talk about allies and backup and internal power and what that looks like, because now we've got some really interesting points that I'd love to connect, some dots I'd love to connect, because you work with, you have worked with people who wanted to practice relinquishing authority, and you've worked with people who wanted to practice claiming authority. And what I know about being multiply marginalized in public spaces is that if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to step up and claim my authority to say this thing on my own authority, like not because anybody else said so, but because I said so, that's why. What I need in order to move that from, from people being reacting in disdainful or dismissive ways to people treating me as though I do in fact have that authority is I need allies to be my backup publicly and vocally, be my backup, actively be my backup. Not just, oh yeah, I think that's true in your head, but like I need allies, you know, if I start to speak up in a meeting and I get talked over by five white people and three men, I need somebody who's sitting in the power structure to say, hang on, I don't think Lila was done talking. <laughs> yes, yes. Power must speak to, uh, privilege must speak to privilege. Th this is something that I believe so strongly in and, and is, I think, one of the greatest tragedies of people with institutionalized privilege. Um is that it can't always be the oppressed person who points this out because the oppressed person, whether that's because of race, gender, um, body type expectations, that when, that when I have a best friend who is a fat activist, and so when she talks about what it's like to move someone through the world who self-identifies as super fat, she's someone who's perfectly capable of sticking up for herself or vocalizing why the way that people treat her is wrong. If she's only ever the one to talk about it, people just kind of go, oh, well, of course she's bitter because insert marginalized identity here. And the same thing with women. I mean, I'm, I get very tired of when I try to talk with men about sexism and I'm relegated to, oh, well, she's just a hysteric, she's just being hysterical or she's being a militant feminist. You know, when black women talk about their experiences, they, we, the marginalized person cannot always be the one to push that through. Now, it is important for folks who are being marginalized or oppressed or left out in some way to speak up and share their experiences. But tragically, the impact that that makes on its own doesn't compare to when somebody who isn't experiencing that marginalization speaks up and says, hey, you're talking over this person, or hey, that was actually kind of casually racist to this to this person who's standing right here, and I'm going to call it out because it shouldn't fall on them to do it. And so I think that that sense of allyship in action is something that, again, anyone with privilege in various spaces needs to see that, again, that part of the power and responsibility of that privilege is to make sure that you are visibly and vocally standing behind folks that, that don't have that same kind of power and privilege. Right. We need backup and we need to be backup for each other. If I notice that I'm holding power in the room, 
like at that board meeting, I've been on the board for a year. There were a handful of new people who had not been on the board before. I was paying attention. Like, is the one masculine presenting person of color at this table not getting to talk? Because <laughs> that's a problem. Right, right. And so even though I know I have trouble getting heard, sometimes I have more power as somebody with a different identity from the person who's being marginalized, right? Sometimes I can leverage my power as someone who differs because people, we have this incredible mistrust of people speaking up in their own interest. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Is that the credibility should be most respected from the person who's experiencing it, but uh, but we're not there yet. And so, and again, privilege comes from money, many different places. Maybe you have privilege of seniority in a certain environment, even though you have marginalized identities in other situations. But I think it's also important to note to my fellow white folks is that there's a difference between being backup and then starting to talk over or talk for that group, right? Is that if you and I were in a group and, you know, you continued to be dismissed, it, it then isn't doesn't fall on me to say, well, here, let me tell you guys what Leela was trying to say because you'll listen to me because I'm white. Instead to say, hey, everybody, Leela has something to say and I want to make sure that we're creating space for her to say it rather than for us to then um, appropriate that position of speaking up. This is a situation where we talk about handing the mic off. Get the mic and then give it away. Yes, yes. And then you don't get the, the, this is the tricky part that I see, especially with white women. You don't then get to police what gets said into the mic. Right, right. You, you're not then, you are not the container, white women, and I'm speaking, you know, to myself and for my, my fellow white women. You don't then speak up and then become a container for the other person's word. You speak up be- because you can disrupt that flow, the flow of talking over somebody or ignoring somebody or disregarding their experiences or perspective you don't then become the container for those things. You need to then be the the boost to give back to that other person. And it's, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a person with a lot to say. I have a lot of opinions about things. I don't, I don't typically shy away from sharing my perspective. And so this isn't about telling white people to shut up. It's not about telling men to shut up. It's not about telling white women to shut up. It's about saying, use your power, yes, for appropriate ways in your life, and then start to recognize the power that you have to lift others up as well. And I think that it's it's really useful to think about the studies they've done where you know, when women speak 30% of the time, men think they're dominating the conversation because they're so unaccustomed to having women, having women speak that much. And to see how that applies to intersectionality, to see how that applies to multiple marginalizations. If you are already somehow marginalized, but maybe you're only marginalized once or twice, or in this context, you also carry power. Because this is obviously power is, is a complex thing. It's very rarely cut and dried. Right. 
And so if we're looking at that and it's like, okay, so you're, you're holding power. So in what ways are you afraid of relinquishing that power, especially if you're in, in some way marginalized and in other ways not, you got your hands on some power. Are you now clinging to it? Are you afraid to give it away? Are you afraid what's going to happen if you give it away? Are you afraid what's going to happen if you give it away to somebody who's got less power in this situation than you do? Are you afraid, like the suffragists were, that if you elevate everybody that your cause will somehow be undermined? Have you forgotten what intersectionality actually looks like? Right. Right. Yeah, it's... um... Power is complex. <laughs> it could be the title of the title of the episode is power. Power is certainly complex, and I it, it brings to. I mean, I I genuinely find a lot of parallels in the kink world to society at large, even though it's this very niche world. In the sense that I I hear similar concerns from folks that are like, you know, well, if I let someone spank me this one time then am I going to end up living in a cage in a leather suit in their basement? <laughs> that it's like the, this idea that one instance will lead to an absolute erosion of everything you know in your life is an unrealistic fear. And so, you know, in the sense that, okay, I'm going to, for the next meeting, the next meeting that I go to at work, I'm going to make sure that I step back, that I make sure to boost if someone else is speaking and not being heard. That doesn't then mean that I don't ever get to talk in a meeting ever again, or that I don't ever get to share my ideas. The idea of boundaried time is I think that is a very uh, useful tool from the kink world that can be pulled into the broader world. That if you're someone who is nervous about um, relinquishing even the smallest bit of power for the smallest bit of time, remind yourself that that you're putting boundaries on it, that it's a place to start. And it do- that doesn't mean that then your entire life or your entire personality is going to change because of um, because of these experiments and instead look at it as a growing opportunity that you can always step forward again. And as more of a tool that you're using rather than a permanent state you are inhabiting. I'm going to push back a little bit on that because I think that essentially what you're saying there is I'm going to pick on white folks. Um, essentially what you're saying there is if I'm white and I have power and I want to like experiment with giving it up, that's okay. But I can comfort myself knowing that I can always go back and reclaim my power as a white person and I don't have to actually give up any power. And while I think that's a perfectly good way to start, if you can't get yourself to start at all, I actually feel like the ethical thing to do is to examine why you are unwilling to have your entire world deconstructed and reconstructed because because we live in a world that needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed. And here's the thing, I 100% agree with you in the sense that the self-reflection, the deconstruction of social expectations is what people in privilege 
should be doing, that that's the ideal world, is that people recognize that they have privilege that is preventing others from claiming their own power, that they step back and that they see the benefit of that going forward. But I have found through my work, and obviously people's mileage may vary, is that it's the starting that is so difficult for a lot of people. And it's the fear that the one thing is going to lead to a lifetime of of not being able to then do that one thing that you gave up. And so, um, so I think that there can be a benefit to giving yourself well and and so here's the thing right it's because i think a lot of people in privilege might say oh well but do you remember that one time that i let that other person talk so obviously i'm an ally now and and right now i'm going to step forward right that's not what i'm saying that's not what i'm saying because that is a performative meaningless thing that you've then done i'm saying that when you're looking at a thousand step journey, focus on the the first one to three steps in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that if that means trying it, trying to step back, knowing that, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with you, what you're saying, Leela, that, that that's not necessarily the most ethical approach, but I think it could potentially be one of the uh, more realistic approaches. Right. And that's one of the great, challenges, I think, of liberal communities in general, and um, centrist communities especially, is that there's a recognition that if you begin down this path, it could change you. And the people who are available to guide you on that path are probably hoping it changes you. I want people to listen to this podcast and think about the ethics of their relationship to power and think about the ways in which they claim power and in which they disclaim power that they have and what the damage is when somebody who has power refuses to claim it. As you were saying earlier, you know, when, when people say, oh, well, if I don't claim my privilege, then, <laughs> then it's okay because then I don't have to think about how, what a horrible person my privilege makes me. And I'm like, your privilege doesn't make you horrible. It makes you powerful. Let's talk about how claiming your privilege and understanding your privilege puts you in a position to change the world. Absolutely. I think that that is the hope of trying to get people to, to experience something new, right? Is that it will change them. And so I, for me, and seeing this, one of the things I love about activism and about these kinds of conversations is that we're all coming at it from a slightly different angle and that these different angles are going to appeal to different types of people, right? Is that some, some people, absolutely. They realize that their privilege has been impacting the world in a negative way and they decide to make a change. In my experience, that is not as frequent as someone who needs to test the waters and see how good it feels to let someone else, because of course we want people to act out of altruism. Of course we want people to do the right thing because it's right, but that's not how human beings work. And so that's true. 
you know, it's, it's like, do we live in a fantasy world where we have this purity expectation where they have to come in at a level 10 of allyship and then maintain a level 10 of allyship forever, or they just get, you know, shit on and knocked off and like, well, nothing that you did matters anyway. I don't think that that is as helpful. Now, again, I'm not looking to give privileged folks, myself included, a cookie for for giving it a go. But if if it feels too overwhelming for someone to think that they have to give up their power and privilege forever so they just don't even try, that to me is a guaranteed failure. Instead of saying, hey, look, if you you know, let's, let's have you step back within this particular environment and for this particular time, and then take a look at how not only you felt, but how it impacted the people around you and how that impact might change how you felt. Because certainly you might, your, your initial instinct as a person of privilege is to go, wow, that sucked that I really didn't have a chance to share my thoughts or to take up more space in the meeting. But then when you look and you see or you talk to somebody who benefited from you stepping back, of course, the hope is that then you go, oh, okay, well, that it didn't it it was uncomfortable for me, but I see the benefit of it. So I'm going to give it another try again. I just, you know, I don't know. I mean, I definitely have felt in my past. I've been a very like scorched earth feminist in the sense that. You know, if somebody didn't like get it, then I had no interest in interacting with them in their life. I had no interest in having a conversation with them because to me, it was just so apparent that they were so utterly wrong. And now at the age of 40, that has not always been terribly effective to win people over to what I'm trying to share with them. And I, it's, it's obviously a very fine line between coddling someone and giving someone with privilege unearned cookies. But I have become a bit of a realist in the sense that I want, if one step is what I can get out of people, I want to take that one step with them. And then if I can get them to take another two steps, then I'm going to work on those two steps. But if I approach them and say, I need you to you need to take a thousand steps and there's not going to be any discussion about how difficult that is or the challenges that you're facing in that journey. No one is going to make it to those thousand steps. And I think that last piece is really important because I'm not suggesting that we pretend that it's easy. And I'm not suggesting that we, that we don't, I actually think incremental cookies are a useful tool. I oh, think yeah. Yeah. When, when somebody makes incremental change, I often do give them a cookie because they moved from point A to point A and a half. Like we might need to get to Z, but A to A and a half, that was progress. Thank you for the progress. Yes. And, and, and it makes a difference. And so I talk about, like, I will frequently say, like, when you did this, this changed this for me, or when you did that, I noticed this in the room, or this is the impact I saw of what you did or the way that you changed your behavior, your presence, your experience, whatever it is. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. In fact, you know, I'm very fond of saying to people like, I'm not going to lie. This is complicated and hard. And the reason I'm here is to support you getting through this complicated, hard thing. But I'm also not going to be 
I'm also not going to support the idea that we're going to try this and then it's going to go back to the way it was. Because my hope, my aspiration with whatever it is, is that you'll try this and you'll be forever changed, even if it's just from A to A and a half. But see, that's part of my expectation too. I I believe, and it's been my anecdotal experience, is that once people take that first step, they do see the benefit. What I'm talking about is getting people to take that first step. Is that is that if it is is knowing knowing that you can put something down for a certain period of time. It's not ideal, but if it motivates people to give that a try, when I'm confident that that try will lead them to continue down the steps, I personally just don't feel the need to focus on those other steps first. And I think that, and I, and I agree with you in the sense of giving validation or sharing gratitude and approval when someone takes a step when someone makes progress. So again, this is where language does not feel nuanced enough for me that when I say cookies, I'll tell you like what a great example of this that's in the news right now is that Mitt Romney was the only one who voted voted for impeachment, right? The rest of them uh, in terms of Republicans voted against impeachment. And so should Mitt Romney be acknowledged for doing the right thing. Absolutely. Thank you for doing the right thing. You doing the right thing is going to have an impact on the world and how people view you personally. But there's a difference between saying, thank you for doing the right thing. And some of the discourse that's happening around that of, you know, Mitt Romney is a hero. Like what a heroic stance. And for me, that's the difference between a cookie which is like, for me, a cookie means celebratory. You've done enough. Good job, you. Dust off your hands. That was dessert. Dust off your hands. Eat your cookie. Your job is done. That that feels different to me than saying, I appreciate and validate the choice that you make and hope that you continue to make choices in a similar vein. And so maybe it's just me being persnickety or thinking about semantics. But for me, there's a difference between validating and appreciating and saying, great, you've done it. <laughs> and yeah, the journey is never done. Right, exactly. And, and, I think, and I think there's some, I could be wrong, but I think that there's some inherent sort of white supremacist culture in the idea that you do a thing once and then you're done. Yes. So many of the other cultures that I've encountered are like, this is an iterative process. This is a cycle. This is a circle. This is a thing that goes around and comes around and comes around. So you're going to do this and then you're going to do it again. And you're not going to be impatient that you have to do it again because of course you have to do it again because that's the shape of life. And we have this very, in our culture, we have this very linear sense of everything. And I think it gets in our way. Oh, definitely. Well, and I think that to biggest driving forces in our society are white supremacy and the patriarchy. And, you know, one of the idea of cookies or one and done sort of thing for me often comes up with the idea of either um, dads taking care of their kids, like quote unquote babysitting their own kids, 
right? Ugh. Or the the kind of the kind of man who goes, well, I did something really nice for you for Valentine's Day, and so the fact that I'm kind of insensitive and dismissive and thoughtless on every other day of the year shouldn't matter because I did something big on Valentine's Day for you. And so I think that if we look at any sort of predominant institutionalized societal construct, we're going to run into that sense that one and done, or you do something and then you don't have to do something for a really long time. And so again, I want to reiterate, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that when you look at what's right in front of you, and when you look at the change that you can make in the next meeting or the next client that you talk to, or the next time you talk to your family. If you look at that, and if you try to make a change in that, rather than getting overwhelmed that, oh God, now I suddenly have to be aware of every single marginalized identity and I have to always, then it becomes overwhelming and people just won't do it. That's simply human nature. It it sucks. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that you're like a bad person, but if we don't give people an entry point without expecting them to climb the whole Mount Everest of things, I just think we'll continue to lose ground instead of gaining ground on these issues. I definitely don't disagree with you. Um, I think we're we're talking in sort of... different arenas of the same different sides of the same mountain, if you will. And, and I think that part of what's true for me, what I really liked about what you just said is this idea of look at the next thing in front of you and how you can make change in that thing. And then look at the next thing in front of you and how you can make change in that thing. So today I have an interview and then I have another interview and then I have, I have a, a phone call and what kind of change can I make in this interview, that interview and the phone call? Like I don't have to think, about my whole life at once, because I think you're right. I think that does get overwhelming. And I think building incremental change into our lives is the way that we make changes. I mean, there's all that stuff out there about 30 days to make a change, but it's not just 30 days. And it's, and it's much more complex, you know, because you go through days when it's easy to do the new thing. And then you go through days when it's hard to do the new thing. And you're like, I don't want to do the new thing. I just want to you know, do whatever the old thing was because it's comfortable because the neuronal pathways are super highways instead of machete hacked paths through jungles. And so what do we, how do we figure out how to approach this? And especially as educators, especially as leaders, especially as cultural transformation workers of one kind or another, what is the most effective path to change? And I don't think you're wrong saying that you can scare people off being on the path at all by telling them that the path is going to change them. And on the other hand, I think there's a whole other audience that knows they want to change and needs to find that doorway in, but isn't isn't unwilling to hear that it's a doorway at the beginning of a longer path. And so I think part of this is also the audiences that are responding to you versus the audiences that are responding to me. I think oh, our yeah. our identities and our backgrounds influence I mean, this is sort of, this is very meta, right? Our identities and our backgrounds influence how we approach the people that we approach and who we get to approach, who I get to be in conversation with. I get to be in conversation with you because you're in this place with, you're able to be in this place with me. There are people I can't be in conversation with. 
And there are people that I can be in conversation with that you can't be in conversation with. And so the global picture of how do we change ethical power, how do we change power, use of power, implementation of power, claiming of power to be more ethical, that conversation is one that requires so many different voices. We all have to be in this conversation because we all have different reach and we all have different audiences and we all have different people for whom we are the authority that makes this conversation accessible. Exactly. And that, and, and I was thinking as you first started talking, I recognize that the privileges and biases that I have then might be impacting my, exactly what I'm saying, right? Is that it's like, it's, it's one thing because I have, you know, a couple of marginalized identities and that, that again, it's not like I'm saying, oh, well, as long as you are, are um, allies to like women and people of color, then that's enough. And you don't have to worry about the trans community or folks with disabilities or <laughs> you know what right. I mean? that like, that first of all, people are often a- attracted to different leaders, educators, mentors for different reasons, but whether because they personally identify with you, whether or not they're in the same place in, in the journey than you are. And that rather than saying, okay, this is the approach we're going to like, the approach is going to be incremental or the approach is the expectation that, um, they'll jump in the deep end and just, uh, swim or drown it. Uh, you know, and that's, that's on them. Um, I hope I don't do that. (laughs) Right. No, no, no. But, but, but that's what I'm saying is that there's this broad spectrum of approaches. And I think that it's important that we have so many diverse levels of experiences and voices and perspectives so that we can tap into different types of people. I mean, I know I am 100% confident that my ability to be a spokesperson for alternative sexualities is strengthened by the fact that I look like your neighbor. That it's like, I look like the girl next door. And so I'm able to talk about certain things and to be heard on certain things because of the package that it's being presented in. And so I think each of us have to find the path that A, feels most authentic to ourselves and B, is going to allow us to make as much progress within whatever our community or reach is as we possibly can and to continue to learn and adapt and to find the best ways to get these messages out to the, the the absolutely diverse people that we're trying to get on on board. Right, which is really everybody. Let's be right. real. <laughs> right. So we're coming to the close of our time, but I want to give you a chance to talk about your book, which I read and thought was fantastic. Thank you. And to talk a little bit about where your work is going from here. Awesome. Thank you. I I I that you read Ditch the Bitch Stigma. It's um was I've been I've always been a fairly relentless creator, uh, but Ditch the Bitch Stigma was one of the most interesting and difficult challenges that I've tackled in the last 20 years professionally. It's a book I'm very proud of in that it translates a lot of the work that I've been doing in BDSM education and sexual empowerment um, for folks with a particular emphasis on women. And it's, it's given a framework to use these techniques 
in your work life, in your uh, family relationships, outside of the bedroom. And it's mainly focused on the different ways that confidence and power can look. Again, I feel that we're often told that power looks a certain way for particularly, um, and it, which is tends towards a masculine version of power. And that if we don't fit that power, then we're just kind of shit out of luck. And my book really instead gives a series of archetypes where you can see the different ways that power can be expressed that feel true to who you are, rather than you feeling like you have to contort and adapt and cut off pieces of yourself in order to fit this, um, this vision of power that most of us are presented with. And it's called Ditch the Bitch Stigma because of, because of the ways that women are judged, particularly around ambition and setting boundaries and communicating directly. And so the book, it's a very action-oriented book. It's not a fluff like, oh, you know, you've got this. You're amazing. Your voice deserves to be heard. It's like, <laughs> here's how to make your voice heard. Here are some different approaches that you can take depending on your personality. My confidence is fairly brash and loud that when I'm feeling confident and and the things that I am confident in my life, I am I'm very firm in my confidence of that and I'm fairly in your face about it. And I've worked with a number of people whose confidence is quite a bit more quiet and self-contained and both of those are exceptionally valid forms of confidence particularly when we understand that our confidence should fit us rather than us fitting an idea of confidence. So that's that's a really core aspect of my book, along with prioritizing your own understanding of your beliefs. And again, this is a fine line, right? There's a fine line between being a toxic person who says, oh, you don't get me. Like, like I'm, I'm really tired of the whole out, I'm out of fucks um, thing that it's like, you know, well, I have no fucks about what you have to say. Like, I don't have to care about what you say. There's a difference between expressing yourself in a way that feels true and authentic to you and other people not being able to receive that either because of sexism, racism, or other types of biases And that we have to do our best to communicate, but that at a certain point, we have to realize that it's not entirely our responsibility to change and educate every single person we come into contact with. And so Ditch the Bitch Stigma is very much about the state of how sexism impacts us. And it's not just like sexism from men to women. It's all different kinds of dynamics that can impact how women are expected to behave. And so now I'm getting ready to launch a online coaching program called the Badass Breakthrough, which is my solution to the problem that is the bitch stigma. And Badass Breakthrough is really all about learning how to communicate in a way that is true to you, that's sets and maintains your boundaries firmly and that treats your needs and desires and ambitions with the worthiness that they deserve. One of the things I liked the most about your book was that it didn't shy away from saying there are toxic expressions of this kind of conflict. I think a lot of times when people talk about empowerment, especially women's empowerment, there's this there's this overlay of claim your power and it doesn't matter. And I think 
one of the most useful things about your book specifically, and one of the things that really sets it apart, is that you say, no, 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 there are ways that you can do this that are not actually ethical, that are probably not in alignment with who you want to be, that, that actually cause damage in the, in the world around you. And then there are ways that don't. So let's see if we can point some of this toward the ways that don't cause damage that still allow you to be assertive. And I'm assuming that Badass Breakthrough is going to do some of that same work, but in an active coaching kind of space. Exactly. That's exactly it. Is that I definitely make the separation between toxic bitches and bold badasses. And because of biases and stereotypes and um, expectations of women, this, those all, all of those behaviors often get lumped in together is that if I set a boundary, if I just, if I very politely set a boundary that makes somebody else uncomfortable or that they didn't want that boundary to be set, then I get labeled a bitch. That's very, that's an inaccurate description of my behavior. <laughs> But I even just, I mean, I very recently had a meeting with a group of folks and a woman who's in the group who I thought was a fantastic example of the difference between a toxic bitch and a bold badass is that she was, she's very condescending. She doesn't make space for other people to have opinions. She um, uh, is very dismissive in terms of the way that she talks. And, you know, I even have to catch myself where I'll think, God, what a bitch. And then I'll think, okay, but is this toxic or is this a way of her claiming her space? And in this particular instance, it definitely was on the toxic side of things. And sometimes it can be confusing. And sometimes um, your intention is the biggest uh, factor. And sometimes your impact is the biggest factor. And so again, it's not it's not just a destination where you arrive, where I have arrived into confidence. And so now everything I'm ever going to do is going to be a healthy expression of that confidence. No, we, we have to take a look at, is this a genuinely toxic attitude that is impacting me and the people around me negatively? Or is this something that I'm doing that is simply making other people uncomfortable because I'm not prioritizing their comfort or their beliefs or their needs? Right. Which is, again, and, and, and I know you're familiar with my work as well. Yeah. That's something that I talk about a lot with intensives, right? And there's some overlap between the work you're doing with the the badass breakthrough work and the work that I do with folks who are intensive, especially in a work environment, that sometimes somebody who's not expected to claim power, who then claims some kind of power, takes up some kind of space, is um, is judged for it in a negative way. And there shouldn't be a pejorative hang, you know, attachment to that. There shouldn't be a, a problem with that. It should be okay. And it's often not. And that's, again, we're back to the society expectation and the socialization and the all the things we've been talking about for an hour and 20 minutes now. Um, <laughs> but, I, but, but I think that it's really important to engage those questions and to have a space where we can have those, have spaces where we can have those conversations about the ways in which the things we do are perceived versus the ways in which we 
we intended those things. And when it is intent, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of impact over intent, except sometimes we also have to take into account the bias of the person who's receiving the impact. Exactly. That's exactly it. And again, it's where language is just not nuanced enough in the sense where I'm not trying to tell people like, oh, the only thing that matters in your, is your intention because, oh my God, has that exact excuse been used for so many people who have been harmful to others, right? Is that, well, I didn't mean to. So the fact that you were harmed by that is not actually the thing that I'm paying attention to. That's something that we all have to watch out for. It's exactly what you just said in terms of how is the other person's biases and expectations of me personally impacting the way that they're receiving my behavior or choice or words? And are they either willfully or um, unconsciously being led by their own biases rather than by the actual action that I am specifically doing or the thing that I'm saying right now? And that's that's when we need to disregard it is when someone is being so is that it's, oh, well, she can't speak to me that way because she's a woman or how dare, you know, that um, the uppity black woman be uppity, right? Then you're just being shitty and you're being led by your own biases and, um, and your intention like doesn't matter. The impact of it does. But I think for a lot of marginalized folks, we're so concerned about our, the way that other people receive us that we spend an inordinate amount of emotional energy and anxiety and trying to do the Goldilocks bed thing where you're just trying to be just right. You have to do your best to be a good person, but you have to understand that not everyone else is living up by those standards and not everyone else is going to receive you with positive intent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that you really have, especially as somebody with a mar- one or more marginalized identities, you really have to filter the feedback you're getting through two filters. One is safety and survival. Right. Like I will never tell a marginalized person that they are wrong for standing down or for stepping back or for, you know, deciding to be quieter. Sometimes that's your survival choice. Absolutely. And that's, that's a legitimate choice. And on the other hand, knowing the difference, you know, in, in in my framework, in the intensives framework, it's about the difference between being a squished intensive and a tempered intensive. A squished intensive is somebody who believes, has internalized the cultural message that it's morally wrong to take up a lot of space, to be loud, to be emotional. And a tempered intensive is looking at a particular situation and saying, there's nothing wrong with who I am, but it's not going to get me the thing that I want. And so I'm choosing to behave differently in this situation. And though that distinction is incredibly powerful. There's incredible power in saying, I'm not wrong. And I want a thing and I have to do something different to get the thing. Which again, brings us back to what started the conversation, which is choice, right? Is that you have a choice of when you, um, when you express your power and how you express your power. And I, I mentioned that in the book as well, in terms of like, you know, I'm not telling people, oh, go out and be a bitch, no matter what your situation is, because there's, there's plenty of times when it is dangerous for me as a woman to speak up or talk back or to inform someone that they're being sexist. 
Um, I try to speak up in as many instances as I can, but my, you know, if I'm dead in a ditch somewhere, I'm not going to really do, do much more for the feminist movement at that point. And so that idea of, are you in a safe place, whether your physical safety or, you know, women who don't speak up at work because they really need that job or people of color who are at work who don't say, wow, it's really racist that you keep touching my hair that they they're not able to express that because it would put their livelihood at risk. You are 100% correct in making the choice that is best for you. And that again, it comes back over and over and over again to me that choice is, has to be the driving factor is that we can choose when to speak up. We can choose how our power is expressed. We can, we can choose to experiment with playing with giving up certain privileges and power. And then we can choose to continue to integrate these things in our life that feels successful and feels like we can do it rather than focusing on what we screw up or what we can't, or when we can't speak up or, or to do those kinds of things. And that really is the locus of power is the ability to choose. And when you find yourself without a choice, then you have found yourself without power. Yes. Yeah. So that seems like a good place to close this. Where can they find you if they want to read your book, if they want to do more work with you, if they're just curious about somebody who can come out of a background of being a dominatrix and turn into a, an empowerment coach, where can they find you? Yeah, you can um, ditch the bitch stigma, embrace your inner badass can be found on Amazon and the companion workbook will also be launched here fairly shortly. And so it's a very interactive, very action oriented um, book and workbook combination. And so uh, you can check out bitchstigma.com where I've got more blog posts and some additional resources around that. My uh, coaching program, badassbreakthrough.com. I'll be doing a few free classes in March, um, Sorry Not Sorry, where I talk further about soft language and how to stop apologizing all the time and what to say instead. Um, And then I'll be opening the six-week Badass Breakthrough coaching program uh, in April. And so I do both one-on-one coaching. And so you're welcome to get in touch with me through either of those websites. And if you have any interest in my previous kink work, you can also check out the site coachingbycali, K-A-L-I.com to see um, the kind of work that I do in that world and um, how it translates into this new arena. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for um, for being real and present and engaged and doing the work that you do in the world, because I think it is really important. Thank you, Lila. Well, and thank you for inviting me on to make and making space for such a great conversation. I, you know, these things are such huge, huge, huge topics that we just have to keep talking about it and we have to keep sharing with each other. And I really appreciate what you're doing to facilitate that and make space for, for these conversations. So thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. The Power Pivot theme music was created by Demi Life. We'd love to hear from you. 
please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching, consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com.